And as you're seated, if you want to turn with me, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, looking at verses 4 through 14. Or if you grabbed one of the sheets that Dave mentioned, it's the passage is laid out, and I have it laid out this way on there to try and help you see and bring out some of the, the poetic beauty that's found there and some of the structure. Uh, but that's what we're going to be looking at. Matthew 18 is a part of a larger section. So in Matthew, uh, he gives us five of Jesus's sermons. And part of the way Matthew structured is it's a show and tell. You have Jesus preach uh, sermons, and then uh, you have him demonstrate what it means to live these things out. And as part of the command to go and uh, baptize them and teach them all that I've commanded you. And there's five major sermons. And this is sermon number four in chapter 18. And sermon number four is all about how Jesus expects his house to, to live together. They're his house rules. It's a sermon for his congregation. And so we talked about last week, you know, every house has its own house rules. And those house rules demonstrate and define these are the things that matter in this house. And Jesus's primary house rule is that here in this house is to be marked by sacrificial love. And so what we're doing, we're actually taking three or four weeks to do kind of a snapshot of the, the sermon. So it's one sermon that we're kind of chopping up and dissecting over three or four weeks. And what we're looking at is in this sermon, Jesus gives a whole series of different attitudes and actions that he wants to see in his house. So these attitudes of flexibility with those who are outside, sensitivity with those who are weak, and attitudes of humility. And then these actions where he wants to see you seeking after those who are wayward and confronting uh, how to have confrontation that ends in restoration and forgiveness, forgiving. So these different attitudes and actions. And so this whole section, I mean, all of Matthew is just, just eminently practical. But this whole section might be one of the most practical things you read or hear all year because it's all about how do you have healthy relationships in an unhealthy world? How do you have relationships that are whole when you're around broken people in a broken world? So this is a guidebook, a manual for healthy, whole relationships. And what we're going to look at today is one specific attitude, the attitude of sensitivity, and then one specific action, the action of seeking after others. What does it mean to enter in, to seek after? So sensitivity and seeking, but let's go, let's actually jump into the text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're going to cycle back, and I'm going to point out some different uh, things to uh, highlight. So starting in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand, or your hand or your foot causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your hand causes you to sin, then tear it out and throw it away. Or if your eye, excuse me, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. 
See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, so that's the text. So this would have been a, an amazing passage to do our video highlighting that we were doing during COVID. So I couldn't actually get the video, but pull up. I know you're not going to be able to see this very well. Sorry. But this is my attempt. This is the conclusion of what that paper would have looked like. So let me try and walk you through, and maybe the colors will help you see some of the key pieces. So a couple of things I want you to notice. All right, notice uh, the beginning. It starts with this threefold whoever. Whoever, whoever, whoever. There's three of them. And the very first one, whoever humbles himself like the child, this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the theme. That's the point. The whole point is the disciples have come. If you remember and ask who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus brings a child, says you have to humble yourself if you want to be great. So that's kind of the theme. And then, um, and just remember in the ancient world, like the common assumption is that the point of your life was to try and accumulate as much honor and glory and wealth and prestige as you could. And this was a zero-sum game. If you were honored, then I'm dishonored. It was uh, the way it worked. And Jesus is just shattering that, turning it up on its head. Like, here's what greatness is. Greatness is to humble yourself like a child and receive one of them. No little people, no little places. You look to the, the least of these. The standard of his judgment is going to be on how you treat the, the least of those among you the weak, those who need, who are needy. So three hum, uh, three whoever's. And then the theme of this whole section, what Jesus, in essence, you can think of it like you go to that third whoever and then just double click on it and a whole nother page pops up. And what pops up is two different panels where Jesus is now going to illustrate how he expects us to act and around these little ones. And this is going to be a window into not causing them to stumble. So now there's a shift. It, the shift becomes not just kind of little people in general, but one, one, a very specific. Just listen to all the references for one. Whoever receives one such child in my name, whoever causes one of these little ones, then on down, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, he's going to search for that one. My father's will, it's not the will of my father in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. See, he's, he's getting very specific. See, don't think about just kind of humanity in general. Think about very specific little, a little one that is in your care. The focus here is on quality, not quantity and of commitment to the individual. Now, the key word here, what he's going to say is, all right, you, you better be careful not to cause one of these little ones to stumble or to sin. And the word here, I kind of highlighted with that word scandal, because this is an image, it's a pictorial word, it's kind of the key word. You see it in orange that runs through this whole first part of the section. The word, the Greek word is scandalon. 
And you don't have to know any Greek to know like what word we get, you know, this night is scandal and it's a picture. And so the, the image is that, you know, you have these little, have you ever seen toddlers? You know, they're just so wobbly walking around and any little breath of, you know, air or feather can trip them up. And the idea is you have these rocks that you just set in their, in their way or just set down and they trip on the rock. That's what the, the scandalon is, is a stone that you trip over when you're walking. And Jesus has already used this imagery with Peter, you know, a play on Peter's name because Peter's name means rock. And in chapter 16, you know, blessed are you, Peter, you're the rock. I'm going to build my church. It's the whole theme of this whole section. And then Jesus says that he's about to go and be crucified. And Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. And Jesus says, get behind me, Peter. You're a scandal. You're a stumbling block. This is a stumbling stone. But notice, just read through this, and I want you to see everywhere that word is used, because it's kind of a nightmare for the translators, because how do you translate this? But just look, everywhere it's orange. You know, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to scandal, to sin, to be stumbled, woe to the world for scandals, stumbling stones, for it is necessary that scandals, stumbling stones come, but woe to the one by whom the scandals the stumbling stones come. And if your hand causes you to scandal, to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than two hands be and feet thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eyes causes you to scandal, to stumble. And you think, what does that mean to scandal, to stumble? Um, we'll, we'll look at that in a second. Thing. Right, how, what does it mean to actually to, to fall? And another thing I want you to notice is, do you notice the threefold better? It is better. It is better. It is, be it is better for you to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and to be tossed into the sea than to trip one of them up. It is better for you to cut off your hand or your foot. It is better for you. So the threefold better, and it's a stark, hard image. You know, May is mental health awareness. And here Jesus is saying, it would be better for you to self-mutilate yourself or commit suicide than to do this. This is hard language. What's he mean? It is better. And then notice the first, there's two images, and you can see the little paint frames. Notice how their first one is framed around images of judgment. Better to be drowned into water. And then the bottom one is better to enter fire, the two images of judgment. One thing we celebrate baptism is that one image of judgment has been transformed into an image of life. So drowning water and then fire framed that way. You know, in the ancient world, you know, we think about uh, my kids have kind of gotten into this game. You know, would you rather... You know, would you rather smell with your feet or hear with, you know, hear with your, or what, was it, what is accurate? Remember, I'm butchering it. They do all these, you know, would you rather smell with your feet or like drink from your ears or something? I don't know. You know, it's like, would you rather die from drowning or die by fire? Uh, neither. <laughs> do I have to choose one of those? And, you know, drowning to us, you know, is just this horrific event because of the pain. But in the ancient world, it wasn't so much the pain that would cause it to be such a horrific thing. It was the idea, because in all cultures all throughout time and history, except for a very select sliver primarily of educated white people in the West, have believed that there's an afterlife. And burial, a type of burial, is essential for entering into that afterlife. And the idea of drowning was be one of the worst ways you could die because you wouldn't be prepared to enter into the afterlife. So drowning uh, framed by judgment. Then notice the two woes, woes for coming. And then notice the next frame is framed by family imagery. 
my father. They see the face of my father. And then it's not the will of my, or very interesting textual. It's kind of, so some Bibles say your. It's a debate, was it my or your? It's only one letter difference in the Greek. So your father, my father, family frame there. So here's these two panels that are giving us, and the main message here is you better be careful how you treat these little ones. It really matters to the Father how they're treated. And from each one of these, I want us to kind of pull out a couple different lessons. So let's pull out a couple different lessons about sacrificial love. And the first one is sacrificial love sensitivity to the weak. So sacrificial love is sensitive to the weak. But what type of things are we supposed to be sensitive to? So first, we're sensitive. We have to be sensitive to the seriousness of this. I mean, isn't it almost alarming? I mean, Jesus uses shocking language. Like, would it really be better to do those things to ourselves? I mean, what, what type of language is this? It's just, it's shocking. So what's he doing? What's the point? I think one of the things he's trying to do is just kind of wake us up to from our just kind of laissez-faire attitude towards others. You know, just the idea that Cain has about his brothers. Am I my brother's keeper? Like, whatever you do, you do you. That has nothing to do with me. He's trying to wake us up and make us sensitive to the seriousness and the interconnectedness of our relationships with one another. And then how serious it is to cause someone else to stumble, to trip up. And so we're thinking about, all right, what, what does that mean? You know, when we think of scandals... We think of, we have certain kind of categories that we think of. These things are, are scandalous. And then we have other categories where we don't think of as scandalous. And I wonder if our categories of scandalous behavior match the Bible's categories of scandalous behavior. For example, all throughout Matthew, when this word is used, one of the things it's talking about is uh, it's scandalous to cause another person to sin. So immorality, causing them to sin, is a scandal. I wonder, is our culture, do we believe that that's a scandal? Another one is unbelief. That's what Jesus is attacking in Peter, is the idea of unbelief, that you're not believing what the Lord has said, you're rejecting. So it's causing people to not believe his word is scandalous. Another one that I thought was fascinating, I had never thought about this until I was studying this week, and did you know that almost the universal opinion from the church fathers all the way through the Reformation was that this text was primarily talking about how you deal with false teachers? Now, that's not really an application I thought of first. Maybe it's just my line of work. I was protecting myself. But the idea was that this is Jesus's body and we were all members of that body. And if whoever's in charge of that body to help you see clearly, to walk faithfully and live faithfully, if they are leading you astray, you cut them off and put them out. So that's an interesting application I hadn't thought of. But that's something, all right, what is scandal? The scandal is about immorality, a false teaching, unbelief. But what Jesus is trying to do, wake you up to the seriousness of this. But in order to be sensitive to the seriousness of it, I think we also have to be sensitive to the context of it. What's the actual situation? Sensitive to the situation that this comes. You know, when Jesus says these things, context matters. 
And what's interesting is Jesus has used both of these images in other contexts. And one of the challenges, if you've heard him say things like this before, is to import what you, you, know, what you think from another place into this one. You have to remember, Jesus was a traveling preacher. And this might shock some of you, but one of the things that traveling preachers do is they repeat themselves. You know, for example, there's just some traditions that this is how you, you're taught to preach. Like in the African-American tradition, the way you're taught is you memorize what are called set pieces. So, for example, like Martin Luther King Jr., he had, and this is one of the reasons you don't ever want to become a famous preacher, because you have people who do their PhDs where they dig up all your sermons and they learn this about you. And, uh, but he had about 120 set pieces that he used in all of his sermons and would just kind of arrange them around depending on the place and the context. And the preaching is, is really like jazz. So you kind of have this kind of piece that most people kind of know what's coming, and then the way you work it and apply it is by their engagement and interaction and the setting and, and the context. So Jesus had those. He had these different set pieces. We've even seen this first one in Matthew already, where he's already commanded us to cut off hands and gouge out eyes. But do you remember, what was the situation there? What's the context there? And when you're looking at these things, one really helpful question to ask uh, when you hear these kind of hard, harsh words from Jesus, one question is that, to ask is, all right, who is he trying to protect? And then what type of people, community, is he trying to create? So who's he protecting with these words? And what's he trying to create? So do you, any of you remember where Jesus has already said this in Matthew? It's in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, if any man, he's talking to men, says, if any men of you looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart, it would be better. You know, what you need to do is you need to chop off your hand, chop off your eye, or cut it out instead of that. So in that scenario, who's he trying to protect? He's trying to protect women. And you think about it, are those harsh words? Or think about what would our world be like if we even sort of took that seriously? Now, here's a trigger warning. I've got two sets of statistics this morning that are probably going to shock you and are just utterly alarming. And here's the first one. This comes from the group RAIN, who is the Rape, Abuse, Incest National Network. And you start reading about the level and the scale of sexual abuse that's in our culture, in our country, right now it's just staggering. You know, they estimate that 81% of all women have been the victim in some fashion of some form of sexual abuse. And one in six have either been raped or had an attempted rape on them. One in six. It's just staggering. I mean, you think about how many tears would not have been cried if we took this more seriously. They estimate that every year there's 440,000 incidents of sexual abuse. And of those 63,000, 63,000 are between the ages of 12 and 17. 91% of them are females. I mean, maybe our problem is not that he's speaking too harshly. You know, what would the world be like if we tried to 
take him a little more serious. So in that first scenario, who's he trying to protect? He's trying to protect women. And then here, who's he trying to protect? He's trying to protect the little ones, the weak, the vulnerable. The context here is not lust that's unchecked. It's, well, it's a different type of lust. It's not sexual lust. It's ambition, power, greatness. Remember, the context is who is the greatest in the kingdom? What does it mean to be great? And who he's trying to protect are all of the little ones that get sacrificed on the altar of some adult's ambition. And then you just wonder, what would our world be like if we took this seriously? Maybe his call that it would be better for you to commit suicide than to do this isn't as stark as we think. You know, you practice being an amateur military historian for a moment. What percentage of the wars that have been unleashed throughout world history were primarily the result of unchecked ambition, drive for greatness and power? I mean, I don't know all of the geopolitical machinations between Europe and Ukraine, but do you think that war would be happening right now if there wasn't a strong level of unchecked ambition and drive for power? I mean, you think about the last century, the bloodiest 20th century, bloodiest century in all of human history. Adolf Hitler committed suicide April 30th, 1945. How many people do you think would not have died if he would have committed suicide April 30th, 1935? 145 million, maybe? It's just staggering to think about this unchecked drive. So the question here is, all right, who is Jesus trying to protect? I mean, maybe uh, these aren't as extreme as we think. But notice what he says with this twofold woe. He says, you're in a world that's dangerous. It's unsteady. There is going to be stumbling blocks everywhere. So don't be surprised when they come. Don't be careless as you walk but then be very careful not to give offense to others. But then here's an interesting thing. Notice the call is you have to protect the little ones, but then notice who the first little one is. You protect the little ones from stumbling, and if your hand, your foot, your eye causes you to stumble, guess who the first little one is you have to protect? You have to protect yourself. This is the whole point about why it's greatness in his kingdom is the humility to recognize I'm the little one. I need to protect myself. We're the little ones. And what he's saying here is there's a good type of hurting. There's a type of discipline with discipleship where that's good for us. You know, the hand, this is what you do. The foot, this is where you go. The eyes, this is what you focus on what you think about. He's saying you have to protect those things. So the first image is a stark image, but it's one that's meant to protect us. And notice the second image of a shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes after the one. We often think about this as an evangelistic passage. This is evangelism, you know, kind of church campaigns, like who's your one? Who are you going to pursue? And that's true in the gospel of Luke, but that's not the point here. The point here is not an evangelism passage. This is a leadership passage. This is a passage about what it means to lead and care for those who are under you. And every person in this room, regardless of your formal position, is a leader, at least a leader of yourself. And almost probably every one of you, we don't have as many kids in here yet, but every one of you has somebody under who's, who's in essence, lower than you that you can tend and care for. 
This is about leadership, what it means to seek and to serve and to care for those who are around you. And notice what the father does in that second frame, this image. He seeks and he celebrates. So we have to be sensitive, sensitive to to the seriousness of it and sensitive to who the actual little and weak ones are. That's us. We are the little ones. But then notice what then, once you're sensitive to it, now how do you act? And the act is then you begin to seek. So sacrificial love seeks the wayward, those who are lost. You look at that, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So it seeks. But you know, a couple of questions to help us think through this is first question, you know, who is lost? Who are the lost here? And it's really important here to keep it in the frame of the family because he's using the uh, agricultural, the business metaphor to illustrate a family truth. So he's using, you know, if a shepherd has 99 sheep, one of them's gone, you'll go after the one, bring it back. Now, from a strictly uh, cost-benefit analysis, that's really not a good idea. Like if you're a business owner and you have 100, you know, assets and somehow you lose one, you don't risk the 99 to get that one back. So just from a business standpoint, this really isn't a great idea. But, you know, um, families aren't really like businesses. So, for example, if I take my four children with me to one of the theme parks for a day and I come home and I don't have Sam with me, Cynthia's not going to say, well, you know, that's not bad. Three out of four, 75, or you know, where's Sam? And what if I respond, well, what does it matter? I brought three of them back. You know, it's 75%. That's not bad for dadding. I mean, look, if I'm an investor and three out of four of my investments hit, we're rich. Or if I'm a professional golfer and I make 75% of my putts, you're rich. So I don't know what you're complaining about, me bringing three out of the four back. And so, no, no, that's not the category. This is family category. That's a wrong cost-benefit analysis. He's saying even if he has 100, which would have been a huge flock. I mean, we're talking wealthiest man in the village and, and surrounding area, huge flock. And even one of his little ones is gone. He's going after them. He's going to pursue because it's the frame of the child. These are my children. This is my child I'm going after. And what I want you to notice, I don't have this question, but another question. All right, well, what danger are they in? Here'd be another thing to mark. Do you know this repetition? They've gone astray. They've gone astray. They've gone astray. And then there's this fascinating word that the father does not desire for them to perish. Perish. They've wondered, how did this happen? Maybe they got allured down another path. Maybe they were, uh, couldn't keep up, but they, somehow they've, they've wandered. They've gone astray. But the word there, perish, is really interesting. What Matthew does or Jesus does is takes two, two Greek words and shoves them together into this real awkward mishmash. And the word is self, you, person, destroy. We have a word kind of like that, which is self-destruct. 
His desire is that they don't self-destruct, that they don't destroy themselves. And, you know, that's the real danger. You know, the careless disregard for the stumbling blocks, the the waywardness is actually an act of self-destruction. That's the beauty and the glory of the gospel because he wants to take you and hold you and make you into who you're meant to be. And if you turn your back on him, you're actually turning your back on life. This is the path to self-destruction. And so you think, all right, how many then are going down this path? You know, in this story, you got 99 who are safe and there's one who's going down the path of self-destruction. But maybe in our world, in our context, how would you reframe the numbers? What do you do when you're in a world where there might be like one that's safe and 99 are going down the path of self-destruction? You know, here's round two of the staggering statistics that should scare us. You know, since 2009, think about deaths of despair and suicides. And since 2009, for about 30 years, it was a pretty stable uh, amount of suicide, either attempts or accomplished within teenagers. Pretty stable for about 30 years. And then in 2009, there was a drastic and dramatic spike up. 50% spike up in 2009. So again, you can be, all right, let's be amateur historians what type of thing? So that's a lag measure. So something happened 2007, 8, 9 that all of a sudden exploded and there's this drastic spike up. What would some hypothesis be about what happened in 2007, 8, 9 to cause that? Yeah. It was all mumbled together, so I didn't hear any of you. You're all right. Excellent answers. <laughs> we think, all right, well... June 29th, 2007, the iPhone is invented, introduced into the world. You know, 2008, Facebook goes public, becomes a public company. 2010, Instagram uh, is, I don't know, invented, however, whatever you call it, comes. Isn't that interesting? 2009, drastic spike. Since 2009, there's been a steady increase ever since. And then, do you know, we're actually living through a second incredibly drastic spike there was another over 50% spike in 2020. So what happened in 2020? What's staggering is by 2019, one in six teenagers had admitted to actually crafting a suicide plan, which is kind of like one of the final warning signs and, and steps. That's 2019 before the spike in 2020. I mean, it's just staggering. You know, it's like a father of preteen girls. I think, what world? Like, they're living in the world where there might be one or two are safe, and there's 99 that are self-destructing. But do you know, what would you guess is the highest demographic, the highest risk demographic for either suicides or deaths of despair? Let's actually talk about deaths of despair for a moment, because there's been an incredible spike since 2020. So in 2020, we crossed the dubious milestone of over 100,000 opioid deaths. Kind of classifies deaths of despair. Reached almost 100,000, 99 uh, deaths from alcohol-related deaths. What, kind of what demographic would you guess is the largest risk factor for either deaths of despair or suicide? White, middle-aged men. 
and it exponentially rises if you don't have college education. So it's pretty alarming to think in my household, it's not the girls who are at the largest risk factor. Here's just kind of an interesting stat to think about our world. What demographic is the lowest, would you guess, risk factor? Middle-aged African-American women are the lowest. And so you look and you say, well, why? Like we're, we're in a world where it, it's, one is saying there's 99 who have been spread out. You know, what do you do when so many are lost? How can they be found? Well, look here and take hope and anchor the, the, your hope in that last word. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven, or maybe your Father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. You know, Jesus is going to take you and pull you up into a higher perspective. And he says, you have to remember, look at my Father in heaven. Look what he says, the reason why you don't mess with them. Don't despise one of these. See, you may think like tripping them up, you know, kids when, you know, a little toddler's running and somebody sticks out their leg and trips them and some of them laugh, oh, isn't that funny? Jesus, no, that's not funny. You, that you're despising them. Do not cause them to trip physically or morally. Don't trip them up. For I tell you that in heaven there are angels who always see the face of my Father in heaven. And you talk about a verse you could double click on and pages and pages will come up. This is one of the ideas of where we get the idea of guardian angel and all of that. We're not going to go down that side street. But one of the things you do see here is don't mess with little people because they have very powerful friends in very high places. And so they, they're angels in heaven who have my father's face, and notice the frame about the father. And notice what you see about him. There's joy in heaven when he finds them, and there's warning and anger when you cause them to be offended. And God is concerned not just for his flock in general, but for every little lamb that he knows by name. And it is his will, by design and by delight, that they not self-destruct. And he moves us up into heaven because it's from heaven that we can have a perspective to see one of the problems with anyone who is lost and in the midst of the darkness of despair is they can't actually see reality. And you need the perspective of heaven to see what is actually true. But he doesn't just have the perspective. He has the power to get them. And so you think, all right, how does God go after those who are lost? You know, it's because God so loved the world that he did not want them to perish. So what did he do? He sent his only child to go get all of these wayward children. He sent his child to go get them. And you can think about passages like Philippians chapter 2. Like what Paul is doing here, in essence, is devil-clicking on this idea of humility and what does it mean to go after and to seek. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. This is the point of this passage. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but the interest of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to th a thing to be grasped. He sat at the highest place. He had the highest status, and he intentionally laid it aside. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. This is greatness in this kingdom. You humble yourself, and you seek after those who are in need. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even death on the cross. So he stepped out of heaven and came and he sought. He came to seek and to save the lost. And so how does God get his, all, the, all of us wayward children? He sent his child to seek and to save them. And only those who have been found can then join him in his rescue operation of those around you. So the first thing to do is do you recognize that you're lost? You're lost. You cry out to him. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in a certain like kind of strange quasi-spiritual sense where you think, no, I'm lost. You just feel, I'm lost. I'm aimless. I don't know who I am. I'm lost in this situation. I'm lost in this scenario. I'm lost. I feel lost. You cry out to him. His desire is not for you to self-destruct, but to come and get you. So cry to him. And then if you've been found, if you're in a position, this is a passage about leadership. And all of us have people under us who it's our responsibility to seek, to care for, to enter in. You know, who are the little ones that God has placed in your life? And what does it mean to seek them out? You know, building off a sermon from weeks ago, we've gotten tremendous mileage just from the question that God asked Adam in the garden when he's hiding. How does God seek him out? He says, where are you? Just an honest, open question with someone, where are you, is a way of initially seeking. So who are we called to seek out and where can we be found? You know, one of the reasons we celebrate communion every week is just to remind ourselves, this is the location where we found life. This is our home. And here in his presence, there is goodness and there is mercy. And his goodness and his mercy are going to seek me. They're going to follow me all of my days. And this is a weekly reminder that it's here. This is the location that we can find his goodness and mercy. And then on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this body represents, or this bread represents my body that's broken for you. And the bread is symbolic that he was broken so we can be made whole again. So you find in your own self that you feel fractured. This is how you can be made whole. You find in your own relationships and in your world, it's been fractured. This is the pathway to wholeness. Take in remembrance of him. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the pathway. This is the purchase price to bring you back. You were lost. You were aimless. You were self-destructing. But this is the, the purchase price to bring you back into the fold. And every time you take, you do in remembrance of that gift that he paid it all. Lord, we praise you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your word. And we humble ourselves under your word. We tremble at these passages and we pray for your presence and power. We thank you for sending your own son to come and redeem us and save us so that we would not perish. So we ask that you help us, help none of us to live in such a way where we self-destruct when life is offered to us through your son. And then once we find life in your name, I pray that you would help us to have the wisdom, the courage, the energy, the power to see those around us who are, who are weary and wounded and wayward and then give us uh, the strength to enter in. So I pray for anyone here in this room where instantly they knew of a person or relationship that came to mind that they need to, to enter in. I thank you that you don't place upon us the burden of the 99, but you've told us look for the one. So I ask that you help us if there's just one person we know 
that we can seek after. Help us to do that in the, in the power of your spirit. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.